All right, this morning in our Sunday school class, we were doing a little exercise, a practice where we were uh, pretending to plant churches. And we were talking about what the mission statement for these different church plants might be. And I heard someone say, well, isn't the mission of the church always the same? Shouldn't we have the same mission statement no matter where we are? As the church of God, it should be mostly the same. And in my time in Utah as an adult, I spent uh, time in four different churches, and each one of those churches have had a mission statement, and they are rather similar. I want to read to you guys the mission statements of the four churches that I've attended as an adult. The first is to know Christ and to make him known. It's a good mission statement, right? Uh, look for the, the similarities in these mission statements as I read them. The second is equipping believers to become more like Christ and to reach others for him. Third, we exist to reveal the glory of God through the worship of him, the work of service to one another, and our witness to the world. And then, hopefully, this last one's familiar because it's our mission statement here. So if it's not familiar, let's make it familiar. Our mission statement here at Orchard Hills Bible Church is that we exist to equip God's people to serve in the church and in the community. You can see some similarities throughout those different mission statements. Once again, because they are reflecting what we are told in Scripture. Our mission statement as a church that is biblically oriented should reflect the mission of God. And God's mission statement that he has, it can be kind of summed up in John 13, 31, which says, For the Son of Man to, is to be glorified, and God is to be glorified in him. That is really the, the mission of God, that he himself would be glorified. And we remember from Isaiah 42, 8, that he shares his glory with nobody else. He is a, a jealous God in the most perfect sense of the word, and he will not share his glory with another. That is his utmost uh, mission, desire, is that he would be glorified. And I want to just think and reflect on how it is that God has sought to accomplish that mission, to glorify himself. And going back into our minds and thinking back on how God chose for himself a, a people. He set apart a nation for himself in the people of Israel, that they would indeed be set apart, that they would be holy, that they would live their lives separately, and that in living separately, they would bring glory to their God, that their God would be different from the other fake idols that surrounded them. And God performed many mighty miracles and signs in and amongst these people so that they might glorify him, so that others might look in and see, well, Israel, they are, they're certainly different. They are a nation with the holy, mighty God who brought them up out of Egypt, who crossed over the Red Sea, who did all these mighty things, who crossed over the Jordan. That is a different and unique set-apart people. They are a people who God blessed with many prophets to let them know what it is that he had for a mission for them, that they would indeed honor and glorify him as they are living lives that are set apart to him. And beyond all of that, God humbled himself, and he became a man, and he became lower than the angels. He walked among these people and lived a life that was perfect, without sin. And once again, he performed many mighty miracles and signs and works and wonders amongst these people so that he could draw glory to himself, so that they could be a people that recognize this is our God in the flesh, 
And we are to follow after him. We are to be set apart to him and embrace him as the Lord and the King that he is. And Jesus publicly taught as no man ever taught before. He taught as one with authority. Not like the scribes who came before him who would just reference other scribes, but Jesus taught as one who had authority because he indeed did have all authority. In heaven and on earth, it was given to him by, by the Father. He was the one who had perfect authority, and he practiced that authority over nature, didn't he? When he walked on the water, that's not normal, right? That's not something you and I can do. When he uh, cast out demons, when he turned water into wine, that's definitely not something that a typical man can do, right? He was showing himself to be distinct, to be set apart. He showed himself to have authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he showed that he had authority even over death, raising people from the dead. And yet, even after Jesus himself died and he raised himself from the grave, showing his ultimate power over death, showing that he in fact was the the living God. He is the universe, this living God who set Israel apart for his own. He was rejected as God. He was rejected as Israel's Messiah. They didn't embrace him. They didn't accept him, but they rejected him. However, God didn't reject his people. God didn't reject Israel. He has a, a future in store for Israel. He has a plan for Israel because, again, his glory depends upon it. But for the time being, he has set Israel aside, so to speak, put them on the back burner, and rather set apart for himself another people, another group who has a mission, the same goal, to bring honor and glory to God, that he might be magnified through his people, the church. And just like Israel, he chose people that are weak and undeserving and impoverished, didn't he? Remember in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, told that God didn't choose Israel because they were the greatest among the nation, because they were the best or the most numerous. He said, in fact, you are the smallest, you're the weakest, and yet God chose Israel. And in the same sense, you and I, as children of God, we are just clay pots. We are broken vessels. We are disposable, really. We are broken and needy and, once again, impoverished. We are in need of a Savior. Just as Israel was called to be holy, we are called to be holy. Just as they started off from humble beginnings, they had nothing to offer God. You and I, we have nothing to offer God. But the big difference is that the church in this day and age, in this dispensation, we have been blessed and gifted with the empowering Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit wasn't working in Israel, because he certainly was. He was amongst the people, but now he is within the people. The Holy Spirit of God has indwelt his people in a way that didn't take place in past generations. We have the same beginning. We are needy. We have the same mission to honor and to glorify God. But we have been blessed with this different enabling by the Holy Spirit. Two different groups with different outcomes. You and I are in a, a unique position in history if we know Christ and we have been blessed with his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does many amazing things in 
the life of a believer. And this morning, I just want to focus on one small aspect of that. I want to focus on how he blesses his people, how he gifts his people to fulfill and to accomplish this mission of glorifying God, because it is, in fact, unique in the scope of history. And so we're going to be looking at uh, spiritual gifts this morning. And the passage that we're looking at is only one list of spiritual gifts. We have, in fact, four primary lists throughout the New Testament that go over the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has blessed his believers with. And so uh, I want to read for you first from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, and verses 6 through 8. And we'll have a, a list up on the screen that kind of goes through and, and picks apart these different gifts that are highlighted in this verse, or in these verses rather. Romans 12, 6 through 8 says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, accordingly, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. And he who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's just the first of our lists. In our passage today, I want to read from 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Once again, see if you can pick out the, the gifts. We'll have them up there as I read through them. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. And then we have yet another list here in the same chapter, later on in chapter in verse 28. And here it says that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues, and then the last list that I want to highlight comes from the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 11, it says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. And he did so for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so you'll see these are four lists that we have, uh, a total kind of glimpse at the gifts that we have from Scripture that the Holy Spirit has blessed us with. And Walker, if you can just go to the next slide real quick, you'll see that there's quite a, a compared, there's, there's a lot of overlap, I guess. So you see that prophecy is mentioned in Romans, in 1 Corinthians 12.28, and then Ephesians 4.11. All those yellow ones, they are the uh, the multiplied ones, where you can find them in different lists. The white ones are unique to those different lists. And you'll notice that in those last two lists, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and Ephesians 4, um, that those speak of spiritual gifts as they are applied to gifted men, gifted men and women. So rather than speaking of prophecy, it speaks of prophets. Rather than speaking of teaching, it speaks of teachers. Um, so there's a, a slight difference there. And we know that from this passage that we're in, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 
um, that each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So all these people that are in the church, anybody who is a Christian has been given the gift, a gift from the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing in First uh, Peter 4, and that each one has received a special gift to employ it in serving one another in the equipping up and the building up of the church. And so everyone has a gift and every church has a gift. And we see that especially, again, in these last two lists. And in Ephesians 4, that's an even more distinct list in that it's speaking of uh, gifted men who have been gifted to the church. And so God gives gifts to men, and then in turn he takes these gifted men and gifts them to the church. So not only does every believer have a spiritual gift, but every church is gifted with the gifted men and women that God wants them to be gifted with, no more and no less. So each person is to be exercising their gifts in the church. You are needed in this church. Uh, God isn't going to leave us without somebody who's going to be able to step in and fulfill the role that he has called for us to fill. He's not going to leave any holes in his plan. He has gifted the church with the people that he wants to be in those different churches. And so as we come down and focus on just 1 Corinthians 12, I want to divide this list into two different groups. And uh, it's kind of funny that the, the list remain the same. These yellow uh, giftings, the ones that were mentioned in other passages, they also correlate with the gifts that we believe have ceased to exist. So we don't believe these gifts are for the church today, but rather they were for, for the church in the first century as they were uh, establishing the church, but they have now ceased. So my first list I want to go over is the gifts that have now ceased. And then the second list, which consists of the white gifts, are gifts that we still see as being in practice for the church today. And we talked, well, Jeremy rather talked a couple of weeks ago about our view as cessationists, the fact that we believe that certain miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. And if you haven't heard that message, it'd be good to go back and listen to that message, especially as we enter into chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, because it is heavily speaking towards these miraculous sign gifts. But just by way of remembrance, let me remind you that when we talk about these miraculous gifts ceasing, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit and his power and his work ceasing. We still believe that the Holy Spirit is active in his church today. And we're not talking about the supernatural ceasing even. God is a supernatural God, and he still can work supernaturally amongst his people. We just believe that he hasn't gifted his people to be the, the means, to be the medium by which those supernatural means are accomplished. And in a, a real sense, all spiritual gifts are supernatural in the sense that they're not natural to us. They're not something that we have in and within ourselves, um, but they are gifted to us by the Holy Spirit. So every spiritual gift is supernatural in that respect, that it doesn't come from us. And this also would lead us to realize, or it, it really should lead us to realize that there is absolutely no place for boasting. There is no place for arrogance within the church. So as to say, well, I, God has gifted me with such and such, right? Uh, because it has nothing to do with us. Our giftedness doesn't in any way reflect our, our spirituality, but it is 
first of all, spiritual, right? Our spiritual gifts, it's given to us by the Holy Spirit, and it is a gift. It's not something that we have because of anything that we have done. So let's jump into this list, and uh, let's start off by looking at uh, the gift of healing. The gift of healing. What does that mean for somebody to have had the gift of healing in the first century church? Again, a gift that we believe has ceased. And this is a gift that we see practiced and exercised even before uh, the church came into existence, before the church existed at all. We see an abundance of examples from Jesus, who is the, the best example of a healer, right? And I had a number of places that I could go to, but I just took a, a few examples from Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, we see Jesus healed a paralytic. So he was able to walk, get up and walk. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Talk about miracles, right? To raise the dead. Uh, he healed a woman with a 12-year-old hemorrhage of blood. He healed two blind men, giving them sight. He took a man who was mute because he had a demon, cast out the demon, and allowed him to be able to speak. All these miraculous things that are definitely supernatural, he did uh, just in that one chapter. And then I want to read to you uh, Matthew 9.35, which kind of summarizes up the whole chapter. And it says that he was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And not long after that, just three verses, I think, in our Bibles, actually, in chapter 10, verse 1, he, having set this example for the apostles, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Jesus exercised healing. He put that forward as an example, and then he gave that ability to his disciples to be able to do the same thing that he was doing. And so before we uh, really pick that apart, well, I guess we have to also realize that it's not just these healings that he did. So he gave them this ability to heal every kind of sickness, every kind of disease. He also gave them the ability to, to raise people from the dead. You can look in Acts, you can see how Peter and Paul both raised people from the dead. So they had the same gift of healing that, that Jesus had, and it was a portion to them to be able to go out and to do these things. But as we just looked at when, when Jeremy was given his devotional in Philippians chapter 2, Epaphras was sick, right? And he was sick. Paul didn't heal him. So this gift was beginning to fade out. We see the same thing with Timothy. We see the same thing with uh, Trophimus in 2 Timothy, that these men were sick and they were left sick. And uh, rather than being healed miraculously through this miraculous sign gift that God had given to his people for a time and for a season, uh, they were told rather that they were to seek medical means in order to, to seek this, this healing that they were looking for. And so these gifts began to fade out. Um, that is the, the gift of healing, to be able to heal sickness and disease, even to raise people from the dead. Now we also have another gift in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that is uh, really closely related with healing. It's the gift of miracles. In verse 10, to another, he gave the effecting of miracles. And so I want to talk about miracles and see how maybe miracles might be distinct 
from healing. It is possible that they are not meant to be sharply distinguished. Some people think they are uh, just two words that speak of the same thing. I'm not one of those. I tend to think that there's some sort of distinction between healing and miracles. We do believe that uh, every word of Scripture has been God-breathed and given to us, right? And so I think that there's a, a distinction there that we should investigate. But before we do that, I think it's important that we properly and correctly define what a miracle is, because it is a word that is overused in our, our culture and often misused in our culture. Uh, for example, last week when the Packers beat my 49ers, was that miraculous? Um, Mark, was that? <laughs> Maybe, but no, it wasn't a miracle, right? Um, don't tell my wife, but this week I was driving down I-15, um, and there was a police officer coming in the opposite direction who flipped around the median and did a U-turn. Well, I looked down at my dash, and I was doing uh, triple digits, so that was not good. However, I didn't get pulled over. I didn't get a ticket. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting stares. Um, it was bad, right? Uh, to be fair, it was down in Nephi, so it wasn't quite as populated as up here. But was it miraculous that I didn't get a ticket for doing 100? Uh, no, it wasn't a miracle. It was definitely merciful, right, because I deserved a ticket, but that was not a miracle. A miracle, um, properly understood, is an extraordinary work of God which is contrary to nature, Again, we should understand a miracle as an extraordinary work of God that is contrary to nature, not something that is natural. Again, uh, babies are often put forth as an example of a miracle. Babies are great, and it's amazing to see how God has formed and made a, a child in a womb. That is uh, definitely a, a testament to God, but it is not a good definition of a miracle because it is uh, probably one of the most natural things that takes place, right? It is not extraordinary. It is not uh, supernatural, but a very natural thing. So the, when we're talking about miracles, we need to understand what a miracle is properly. Also, we need to understand the, the biblical purpose for a miracle. Why is it that God gave people this gift of miraculous works in the first place? Um, we can look back again to Jesus. In John chapter 5, verse 36, uh, he says, "...but the testimony which I have is greater than that of John the Baptist." Uh, you saw John the Baptist. My testimony is even greater because that's given me to accomplish and that which I am doing is a testament that the Father indeed has sent me. Again, in John 20, 10, verse 24 and 25, people had the, the audacity to say to Jesus, the Lord of the universe, that if you were the Messiah, just, just tell us plainly. And Jesus said, well, I did tell you, but you did not believe uh, he, he laid it out there. He let them know. And then he goes on, he says that the works that I do in my Father's name, they testify for me. They testify of me. So even if he didn't believe my, my, my plain words, you can look at my miraculous works. You can see I'm set apart. I'm different. I am who I said I am. You guys just need to listen. And then Second uh, Corinthians 12, verse 12. Let's read this together. It talks about um, this same gift being given to the apostles to the disciples it says that the sign of a true apostle, the signs of a true apostle, were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So the signs and wonders, these miracles, pointed people to the fact that they were 
indeed apostles. It confirmed their, their preaching and the message that they brought. It confirmed their authority from God to be sent among them. And so they, they were able to confirm what it was that they were mentioning to these people. Now, it's often thought that the Bible is just filled with, with miracles and that miracles used to happen on a daily basis and now we're just in the 21st century so it doesn't take place anymore. Well, even in, in biblical history, that's not the case. Uh, just think back through, through biblical history and how the Bible is, is laid out for us. And you can think and maybe identify that there are three main areas in which God worked in miraculous ways, in which he used these wonders and works and signs to bring about the fact that, or to, to highlight the fact that his messenger was, in fact, sent by God. So the first group of really big miracles that we see in the Bible takes place in the Exodus, and it's centered around the person of, of who? Of Moses, right? So Moses goes into Exodus. He has all these miraculous signs and wonders that he's doing, and that was for a purpose, so that people could see, okay, well, Moses, he's, he's a prophet of God. He's somebody different, right? The second big grouping of miracles that we see takes place a little bit later with, with later prophets, and that's focused around Elijah and Elisha. They're performing all these miraculous signs and wonders. And then this third big grouping of miracles that we see takes place amongst Jesus. Jesus doing all these signs and wonders, all these miracles, and then his apostles, again, to confirm that they have been given this gift for a reason. So I mentioned before that I thought that there was a distinction between healing and miracles. So if miracles don't speak of the fact that uh, these apostles or these New Testament saints have been given this gift to heal, what does it speak of? Um, perhaps it could speak of miracles of nature. Again, we talked about how Jesus uh, turned water into wine. He took and multiplied these uh, fish and these loaves of bread into thousands upon thousands, didn't he? Uh, Moses, he was able to, uh, to make the sun stop shining by the power of God in his miraculous works. But it's kind of interesting that throughout the New Testament, we don't see anybody other than Jesus performing these signs of uh, power over nature, aside from Peter walking on water. But again, that was by the power of Jesus. That was a, a miracle that Jesus performed, not something that was unique to Peter. But apostles, disciples, nobody in the New Testament exercises power over nature. So if miracles aren't speaking of power over nature, if they're not speaking of healing people or raising them from the dead, uh, another possibility is that uh, perhaps it speaks of their ability to cast out demons, um, which is a little bit different, right? It's not something we're used to hearing, but it's something that definitely took place in the New Testament as we're reading through. And the, the word for miracles that's used here is, is dunamis. It's a, a word that speaks of power. So it's literally saying they had the gift of powers. And this word power is used in conjunction with casting out of demons all throughout the New Testament. Um, I'll give you an example here. In Luke 4.36, it says that with power and authority, Jesus cast out demons. How did he do that? With power and authority. Uh, later in Luke 9, 1, it says that he, Jesus, called the twelve together and he gave them the power and the authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. We see the same thing in the next chapter in Luke 10, how he gave the 70 the power to go and to cast out these demons. And so there are, uh, there's a, 
pretty big correlation between power or the gift of miracles, same word, and casting out demons. So that is yet another possibility of how you might distinguish between miracles and power. Um, there are people who, once again, put them together, and, and that's okay. This is a, a difficult passage to understand. This is my opinion, and people are going to have different opinions, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, next uh, miraculous sign gift that we believe has ceased that I want to talk about is the gift of tongues or of languages. And there is a lot to say about the gift of tongues. I had to cross out half my notes, but that's okay because Paul also understood there's a lot to say about the gift of tongues and uh, interpreting tongues and prophecy. And so we're going to get to that in verses or in chapter 13 and, and 14 uh, because he says a lot about it in those chapters too. But for now, I just want to uh, point out the fact that we do believe that these were real languages, like we see back in Acts chapter 2, 15 different groups of people, 15 different languages represented there, and they were spoken as real languages. So we see these as being real languages. And in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-two, we read that tongues are a sign then, not for believers, but to unbelievers. And a sign, we know, is something that points towards something. It signifies something. It is meant to, to draw out or to declare or to explain something. And so tongues being a sign for unbelievers leads us to believe that it was evangelistic in nature, that God had gifted certain people to be able to speak languages that they never knew. They didn't grow up learning. They didn't go to school to study so that they could go and they could speak God's truth, God's gospel to somebody else of a different language who would otherwise not be able to understand what they were saying. Uh, it is certainly a confirmation of God's working within them. Once again, it is a, a spiritual gift that God has given them this gift to confirm the fact that they are set apart, that they uh, are speaking the words of God, that they have that authority to proclaim the truth of God's message. Uh, today, we our Bibles to test things by, right? If I get up here and I say something that's wrong, then you can grab your Bible and be like, hey, Tyler, this is, this is what the Word of God says. And you said something contrary to that, so repent, right? Uh, they couldn't do that in that day. So their test was um, looking at miraculous sign gifts like this. Uh, they didn't have Bibles in that day. That was the sign that they had. Today we confirm truth by the Word of truth, by Scripture. Just like the other miraculous sign gifts, tongues were meant to establish both the message and the messenger, to let people know that what they were saying had truth, it had validity. We see mentioned right alongside of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. Now, as we get farther into talking about tongues and what tongues are, uh, there are, again, uh, a variety of understandings. What does that mean? Is that talking about languages or is it talking about babble and gibberish? If it is talking about Babel and gibberish, which again, uh, we don't believe it was, then the interpretation of that Babel and gibberish, that would make a lot of sense why that would have to be interpreted, right? If somebody's just rambling on and they're speaking some completely unknown language, then it would definitely need to be interpreted. And so not taking that position, thinking they were speaking in legitimate languages, we have to account for what does this interpretation mean then? Why would they have to interpret another language? Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, again, we're dipping into that chapter a little bit. Verses 8 and 9, it says, Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will know to get ready 
for battle. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, nobody will know what you are saying. You will just be speaking into the air. So unless you're speaking something that makes sense, you're just rambling. You're just speaking this gibberish, right? And I think that these verses really help to make it clear that this babbling gibberish isn't what is in view, um, but that what is spoken of as a tongue must be intelligible. It must be understood. And this would make it um, necessary for edification. Paul goes into that in this next chapter, and he talks about how uh, the purpose of these gifts is to build up to the church, is to edify the church. It's not just for one's own personal gain. And if somebody's just speaking in a language that nobody else understands, then there wouldn't be any benefit, any edification for the church. And so if I were to just randomly start spouting off my message in Spanish, one, that'd be pretty cool because I don't know Spanish, and I wish I did, but uh, maybe there'd be one or two who'd pick up on what I'm saying. Um, but even that would have to be explained to me, first of all, because I don't know Spanish, right? And then to the rest of us who don't know Spanish. But if I were to begin babbling off in Swahili or some other uh, random language that nobody knows any words of, they can't even count to 10 in that language, uh, and there was no interpretation, then we would all be just left kind of flat. Well, what, what does that mean? What do I get out of that? Um, unless we had somebody to interpret. And once again, weird example because we believe tongues and interpretation have both ceased. But um, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 14, 5 and 6. Maybe it'll explain it a little bit better. And Paul says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. So, using that same example, back in the first century, if somebody were to speak in a different language, without the interpretation, it would be of no benefit to the church. But if somebody were to interpret what that legitimate language was, then it would be able to benefit and build up and edify the church. And... Here in our passage, back in uh, verse 7, it says, Each one is given a gift of manifestation of, of manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So it is for the profit of all. And we're told later on that we are to try to excel in our gifts so as to edify the church. That has to be the purpose of every spiritual gift. And if it doesn't edify the church, then we really have to question the legitimacy of that, whether or not that is the proper understanding of that gift. All right, uh, let's look at prophecy. We're spending a lot of time in these uh, past gifts. So prophecy uh, literally means to speak before. And that could be understood as to speak before something takes place as we often use that word prophecy, to prophesy, or to speak before somebody, um, that is to proclaim. And so there's two aspects of prophecy. That's the prediction aspect and the proclaiming aspect, to speak forth. There's foretelling and foretelling. Uh, and a lot of people will look at this word in this passage and they'll say, well, that's just speaking of the foretelling, of the proclaiming aspect of this word. And so I would venture to say that out of all the gifts that we're looking at, this word of prophecy and this gift of prophecy is most contended, that there are a lot of people who will place this in either group, either it was for the first century church only or it is for the church for today. And my opinion, once again, um, 
is that it was for the first century church only. And my problem with understanding it as simply speaking of foretelling and proclaiming is that uh, we don't see anything in the text that would lead us to believe that, um, that Paul, the original author, was just limiting his understanding of how that word or the gift was used uh, in any respect. And so we should understand that word, that gift, in fullest meaning of, of the word, the fullest meaning of the term, unless we have reason to do otherwise. So oftentimes when we are all wrapped up here and we're getting ready to leave and there are two or three of us left in the building, uh, one of us will ask another, hey, will you make sure that all the doors are locked up, all the lights are turned off? And unless that person were to specifically say, hey, will you make sure that the bathroom lights are turned off or the kitchen lights are turned off and the front doors are locked, it would be ill-advised to limit that person's words to only that, that group, right? But you would think, okay, well, I should turn off all of the lights in the whole building and I should lock all of the doors uh, that would let people in while we're gone. And Paul doesn't do anything here to limit his understanding of this word prophecy. So I think we should understand it in its fullest sense of the word, that is to speak of both foretelling and foretelling, of both proclaiming and predicting. And let me just read a few examples of how it's used in the New Testament in a predictive sense. In Matthew 13, 14, Jesus said that in the case of the prophecy of Isaiah, it is being fulfilled. In their case, this prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. So he was speaking back to uh, 700 years before when Isaiah was writing, and he said this prophecy, this prediction is being fulfilled today with you guys. In 1 Timothy 1.18, it says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that you would fight the good fight. So Timothy himself had been prophesied about. That is, he was told about predictively beforehand. And then in the book of Revelation, which is filled with all kinds of prophecy, right? It begins by saying, blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That is something that is speaking of the future. And so while we should understand prophecy, sometimes to be speaking of proclaiming and simply foretelling, uh, teaching, something similar to what I'm doing here, uh, we shouldn't limit that word to just that uh, unless we have reason to do so. And I don't believe that we do in this text. Uh, in Vincent's word studies, he says the fact of direct inspiration distinguishes prophecy from teaching. And so if you were to hold to prophecy in that sense of the word, then it would entail some kind of direct inspiration from God. Uh, that would be a, a hard position to take, that God is still inspiring somebody directly. We believe that he has spoken to us through his word. And so that's why we distinguish prophecy from teaching. And I believe that prophecy has, in fact, ceased. So um, all of these different miraculous sign gifts um, were active for the first century Corinthian church. And some people will often say, well, why, why do we even have these in our Bible if they're not for today? If we aren't told to go out to prophesy, if we're not told to go out and to speak in tongues and perform uh, healing and miraculous signs? Well, we have to remember that this wasn't written for us alone, right? We can look back and we can benefit from it. It is written for the first century church at Corinth. And they were indeed practicing these signs uh, so that they could build the foundation of the church upon which we stand today. And so just because it's directly written to us doesn't mean that we can't learn from it, can't benefit from it, but we have to recognize that we are not the 
intended audience, the primary audience, that is. Uh, and before we, we get into the gifts for today, I should point out the fact that uh, this list, these lists, all four of them, that is, are not comprehensive, but rather represent, representative. So um, you think about the gift of uh, exhortation. Somebody may have the gift of exhortation. Well, somebody else has that same gift of exhortation. That doesn't mean that uh, they're both going to practice that gift in the same sense, in the same way. More, some people are more gifted than, than other people. Not everybody has the same gift to the same degree. Uh, and then we're all gifted uniquely by the Holy Spirit in different ways and once again to different degrees. And so rather than looking at them as I have this gift or this gift or this gift, I think we can look at them as uh, general categories that God has gifted his people in uh, rather than being so concrete about the way that we look at these gifts, which is often the way that, that we do that. Um, in, in large part, really, we are all to uh, listen to and embody each one of these gifts, that is, of the, the second ladder list. But God has especially enabled some with, with these gifts more so than he did other people, and we shouldn't use that as an excuse for our not seeking those gifts. Uh, for example, I definitely don't have the gift of mercy, but that doesn't mean that I can excuse myself for making people cry all the time, right? Um, I, I would be accountable for that. Um, somebody might say, well, I don't have the gift of service, so I'm just going to let Ellie take care of that because that's not my gift. Or I don't have the gift of evangelism. Rex, he can go out and he can evangelize, right? Uh, giving, that's not for me. I'll let somebody else give. That's not how it works. We have to seek to, uh, to do what God has told us to do explicitly throughout Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we're not responsible for uh, the practicing and the developing of these other gifts. Just because that doesn't happen to be your gift doesn't give us an excuse not to practice those gifts. So let's uh, look at the second list, these gifts that are for the church today, that are still active uh, for today. And I want to start by looking at the gift of knowledge. And I have a, a quote here about knowledge from uh, a lexicon that I have, the Complete Word Study Dictionary. And it identifies knowledge as intelligence, comprehension, uh, that which is subjectively spoken of what one knows. And it says that in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, the word of knowledge means the faculty of unfolding and expounding theoretically the deeper knowledge and fundamental principles of the Christian religion. So to take what is given to us in Scripture and to, to make sense of that, to make connections throughout Scripture. And I found it kind of funny that uh, John MacArthur said clear back in 1976 that this gift speaks of one who observes biblical facts and makes conclusions. And he said, well, I don't have that, that gift to make these connections and conclusions. Uh, I need to rely on other people who have written commentaries for that. And since then, he's written a commentary on every book of the New Testament, at least this whole big, long uh, list of commentaries. So it'd be hard to accept that statement. But he recognized this gift as being one who can make these observations, these connections, uh, similar to what we might find in a commentary. 
uh, another funny example from Scripture, Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, speaking about Paul's letters, he says, well, Paul writes some things that are difficult to understand. Um, that's, that's pretty funny for Peter to say that Paul wrote some things that were difficult to understand. Uh, knowledge, this same word is mentioned later on in uh, chapter 13, verse 8, and it's mentioned right alongside of prophecy and tongues. And so there's definitely a, a reason to understand this as having mystical application. Uh, that is that there is some mysterious, mystical aspect of, of knowledge, some knowledge that might have been prophetic in a sense. Uh, but that goes along with the rest of these gifts as well. That just because this gift um, is still around today doesn't mean that it wasn't practiced and used in a different application back in the first century. So for those gifts that are still active today, the gift itself uh, still exists. It was just applied differently back in the first century. So we have to recognize that as we go throughout. Uh, the second gift I want to recognize as still being applicable for us today and still being around today is the gift of wisdom. Wisdom could be understood as cleverness or as uh, practically applying knowledge. So once again, some people look at these two gifts, knowledge and wisdom, and say, oh, well, that's speaking of the same thing. I think there are, are subtle differences. Um, and that would mostly apply to the, the application of that knowledge, of that wisdom that God has given to those individuals. So James 1 says that we are to count it all joy when we face or encounter trials of various kinds. And I think somebody with knowledge can look at that and they can understand what that means. That, okay, you're going through a hard time. Uh, count it all joy. Suck it up, right? Um, but James goes on in verse 5. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So it's not just speaking of a, a head knowledge, but how do you take that head knowledge, that fact that you are to count it all joy and to put it into practice? And James recognized it's going to be hard to, to have wisdom and, and how to do this. So we need to ask God for that wisdom on how to practically apply um, that, that knowledge, that information. Uh, once again, another quote from the Word Study Dictionary says that wisdom is the, the skill in the affairs of life, uh, practical wisdom. It's wise management as shown in forming the best plans and selecting the best means, including the idea of sound judgment and good sense. It speaks of deep knowledge, natural and moral insight, deep understanding, including the idea of practical application. So it's taking the knowledge that one might have in Scripture and applying it to, to practical life. This, is, this word for, for knowledge, Sophia, is the same word that Jesus uses uh, when he's speaking of Solomon. And uh, you think back to, to Solomon, the dilemma that he was presented with when he had these two women come forward with one baby and they're both saying, well, this is my baby. No, it's my baby. And knowledge would, would say, well, this is a problem, right? This is an issue that needs to be reconciled, uh, that justice needs to be sought. And knowledge would also recognize, well, as a king, it's his responsibility in order to do something, in order to make sure that his subjects are happy, that his kingdom is running smoothly. And uh, knowledge can even give biblical back for why this justice must be sought, why is responsible. But it's wisdom that takes and applies those 
truths, those principles, and puts into practice those, uh, those facts that exist about justice and the need for justice, and that leads him to be able to settle this issue of who the true mother is of the baby. Um, thinking again about uh, this church at, at Corinth, they really prized this gift of wisdom. Uh, thinking back to the first couple of chapters, we see wisdom, Sophia, over and over and over again, 15 times in those two chapters, talking about how they wanted to be able to, uh, to practically know what it is. They wanted the answers to life, um, to make sense of the things that were left before them. In 122, it says that Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for wisdom. But, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. So, wisdom is good, yes, but we are to preach Christ crucified because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Uh, this gift of wisdom, it is necessary for, for biblical counselors to be able to look and to identify the not just the root of an issue or the fruit of an issue to see, okay, well, this is your problem. That's, that's, that's an issue for you, but to identify the root and the causes and what pours into the problem that somebody has. So it's a gift that often comes out, once again, in biblical uh, counselors and the advice that people are able to give. Some people have that in larger degree than other people have that gift of wisdom. And if we could throw that list up one more time, Walker, um, we might be able to see um, that wisdom and knowledge in this second list, second group, um, could, in fact, take the place of teaching because we know that teaching is highly emphasized throughout all of Paul's writings. In fact, each one of these other three lists, uh, we can find teaching or teachers mentioned, but it's not in the second list. So wisdom and knowledge, they both apply pretty heavily to the gift of teaching. And so perhaps Paul had that in view as he was making this list in the first portion of 1 Corinthians 12. All right, uh, the gift of faith. We're not going to spend a lot of time on faith. I just want to point out that faith is not speaking of saving faith. That's not a gift that we have to be given, especially anybody who is in Christ has saving faith, right? Um, and we all know people who, for whatever reason, they're just afraid to leave their house, right? They don't have enough faith to trust that God is going to take care of them to, to leave their house. We can look at the opposite end of the spectrum, and we can see there are people who have just an abundance of faith. They know that, that God is with me. God will never leave or forsake me, um, and they will go to the other side of the world without giving it a, a moment's thought. Uh, we have missionaries who are just filled with this faith, and they realize that God is going to take and he's going to provide for all my needs according to his riches and mercy. Um, we all have different degrees of faith, and God has especially gifted some with uh, this special gift of faith. And the last gift that I want to discuss is the distinguishing of spirits, or the discerning of spirits. And so now I want to go back to Second Peter 3, 16 and 17, this verse where Peter says, or Paul says that Peter writes things that are, Peter says Paul writes things that are hard to understand. I, I don't know what either one of them are saying right now, but uh, it says that there are some things which are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard 
so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's a, a gift that allows people to distinguish, to make sense. Uh, we're told in 1 John 4, 1, to test the spirits, not just to accept every spirit, but to test whether or not they are indeed from God. Uh, it's a, an issue that the Corinthians themselves struggled with back in uh, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 12, it says that you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. So these Corinthians had the propensity, just as you and I do, to follow after something that is false, something that is untrue. And somebody who has this gift of discerning spirits uh, is in a position where they are gifted to be able to decide, to judge, to distinguish, um, to diagnose if somebody is speaking truth, whether or not that comes from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, or perhaps from a different spirit um, that is from Satan. Um, because that is, of course, of the mo utmost importance. Hebrews 5.14 says that it's the mature man who has their senses trained to be able to discern good and evil. And uh, let's look at Acts 16 real quick. Acts 16, 16 through 18. And we'll see an example of how Paul does this very thing of discerning whether something is from God or from somebody else. And he says, It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned, to, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. So Paul was able to discern and distinguish, well, this isn't from the Spirit of God, even though it was proclaiming these men are from God. Uh, Paul had that gift, that ability to discern and to recognize that wasn't, in fact, the case. Peter did the same thing when he was speaking with Ananias and Sapphira. He said, uh, why has the spirit of Satan overtaken and empowered you? He has filled you. Uh, the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, they were able to examine the scriptures daily so they could discern truth from error. Uh, this is something that we are all called to do once again in 1 John 4, to discern, to distinguish, to test the spirits, to see whether or not they are from God or not. It is important for the church to be uh, protected from the error of false teaching. So looking at all these gifts, I know that's a lot of information. It's only a portion of what I wanted to give you. It's a lot, really. Um, but it's inevitable that uh, we're going to ask ourselves, well, where do I fit into this whole big picture? That's a, a lot of gifts. Um, and let me just tell you that if you are not in Christ, if you're not a believer of God, then you don't have a, a spiritual gift. As gifted as you might be naturally, uh, whatever that might be, it's not a gift of the Spirit. Um, I can also say you ladies don't have the gift of pastor-teacher. I can say that. Uh, with confidence. You men don't have the gift of apostle. I can say that with confidence. But um, it is good to, to examine, to test, and to see, and to question, how has God gifted me uh, by the one spirit, by the same spirit, to be unified in this one body of Christ? So we see a, 
a bunch of different gifts that once again are representative and we can see the diversity within the church, but there is unity in the fact that it is one spirit who has gifted us with these gifts so that we can bless this one church. And rather than going to a website and taking a test or filling out a survey, um, I would encourage you to try to seek how God has gifted you by, uh, by serving, by ministering, by putting into practice the way that God has gifted you. And when we understand that these gifts are representative, they are not uh, exclusive, exhaustive, uh, somebody had said in my study that they related these gifts to, to primary colors and how primary colors can be put together by an artist and used to come up with a, a vast array of different colors and different shades. And in the same way, I think we can say that um, just as one person is maybe more gifted than another person with the same gift. Maybe God has gifted us with portions of these different gifts, portions of being uh, knowledgeable or, or wise or merciful, and we need to seek uh, to, to embrace these gifts, to be uh, known by these gifts, and to embody what it is that God has called us to do to bring glory to himself. And just as the Holy Spirit seeks to glorify the Son, that is his role, to glorify the Son. And just as the Son's purpose is to glorify the Father, once again, that is his, his mission, that God would be glorified. And that should be our mission as well, that we would glorify him. And we have been enabled and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do that very thing. He has given each one of us a spiritual gift to bring honor and glory to God, and to edify and build up the church. And we should seek to, to serve and to glorify him by stewarding our gifts well as we seek to, to edify the church and to build up each other. Let's pray. God, once again, for how he has gifted each one of us and pray that you would help us to better serve you in whatever way you would have us to serve you, that we would be a unified church that we would live and uh, act as a church who is gifted by one spirit, by the same spirit, to be on display for you and to bring glory and honor to your name. God, we thank you that you have saved us. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to live out your will for us in our life and in this church. Amen.